Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. To tell a truly engaging story, you have to dig deep beneath the surface. When it comes to radio storytelling, the Kitchen Sisters are masters of exploring the world of the underground and the unexpected, telling stories from the flip side of history. I've been both a fan and friend of Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson for a long time. On this week's show, we sit down with the Kitchen Sisters to discuss their amazing trajectory on NPR, as well as how they came to find those hidden kitchens. With their help, we'll even hear from heavyweight champion George Foreman about his famous grill, the tool used in many hidden kitchens of the homeless. Then, we talk with Sarah Lohman, whose book, Eight Flavors, offers an in-depth look at influential ingredients Americans use every day. Hunting through historical documents, Sarah uncovered the unique individuals behind each flavor. She shares tales of these unsung heroes who forever changed the American culinary landscape. And finally, We'll meet one of New Orleans' most distinctive TV commercial personalities, Al Scramuza of Seafood City. Al combined his acumen for business and marketing to promote sales and help catalyze the crawfish craze in the second half of the 20th century. We're meeting fascinating characters and those who tell their tales on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. I'm Davia Nelson, the other half of the Kitchen Sisters. Long before this American life and the podcast revolution, the Kitchen Sisters were two of NPR's original documentarians. For the past four decades, Davia and Nikki have been unearthing stories, often in kitchens, and sharing what they call shards of sound from around the world. During their last visit to New Orleans, we invited Davia and Nikki over to our Southern Food and Beverage Museum kitchen to learn how they first met and became the Kitchen Sisters. We both went to college in Santa Cruz, at UC Santa Cruz. We didn't know each other when we were in college. We had never met. But afterwards, uh, Davia was doing radio. She's always been in love with radio for forever and was working at a little community station in Santa Cruz KUSP and became kind of very involved in oral history, wanting to interview the old timers, get to the root of things. And I was working at the local Natural History Museum, but I was doing history and art exhibits. And we kind of found ourselves on the same beat. Like Davia would go and talk to some old timer and I would have been there borrowing that old timer's artifacts and uh, getting their stories. And I had a friend who happened to be 
Davia's boyfriend at the moment, and he knew me, and we, he kept saying, you know, you need to meet this person. And so finally we met. She came to the museum one day. We sat on the porch overlooking Monterey Bay, and I think she got there around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we, we talked until about 8 o'clock at night and sort of just fell in love at that moment and it, it kind of went on from there. You're listening to KUSP in Santa Cruz. With us today on the Kitchen Sisters is Led Inglesman. Led has been out at Wilder Ranch since 1929, and uh, we've been badgering Led for probably... So, Davia, the name Kitchen Sisters, so how does that project then get started? We had a weekly show uh, called Every Wrinkle Tells a Story. It was an oral history show on KUSP, and uh, in the meantime, Nikki and a group of people had bought land together and were starting a commune. It was the, one of the first nights at the place, and Nikki and I were cooking salmon for the group. We're kind of looking through this book. It was the sidewalk companion to Santa Cruz architecture. We came across this story on the Kitchen brothers, who were two actual brothers, Kenneth and Robert Kitchen, who were stonemasons in Santa Cruz, and during World War II built yogi temples and goat milk bars and tried to send and receive messages to submarines they thought were lurking out in Monterey Bay. and. We got captivated. Already the stove was funky. Our attention span was about that. And we just started calling ourselves the Kitchen Sisters as we were cooking, and we derailed, and the salmon dinner went basically up in smoke. And then when we got on the air that week, when the guy came to be interviewed, we said, well, tell us the story of the Kitchen Brothers, not to be confused with the Kitchen Sisters who are here with you today. And it just kind of went from there, and somebody made a um, bumper sticker that said, Free the Kitchen Sisters, and it was during that era, so it just became. We weren't doing food at all at that moment. We didn't do food stories for another 25 years, really. I mean, food was always there in the wings. You know, you can't do stories and not and tell people's life story without food being part of it and an important part of it, but it wasn't the center of our focus at all. That would come to Hidden Kitchens, you know, many, many years later. I think food just flowed through absolutely every interview. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're talking to someone about because food really warms up the conversation. I mean, if you find yourself lagging and you find someone uncomfortable or stiff, just start asking some questions about childhood food or what they had for breakfast, and you'll be amazed to where the conversation goes. So at the seed was planted. It was always there, but we didn't frame it as food at that point. And what sparked Hidden Kitchens? The origin myth of Hidden Kitchens is this. I live in San Francisco. I hate to drive. I take a lot of cabs. And I would notice that every time I got in a yellow cab, the driver was from Brazil. And not just from Brazil, but the same town in Brazil, Goiânia. And it turns out, we later found out, 436 drivers were from this one town in Brazil. And Nikki and I had done a bunch of projects in Brazil in the past, and I'd studied some Portuguese and knew the music and knew the food. And so, you know, we just get in these conversations in the cabin. And then one of the drivers one day said, you should really go over to Jeanette's kitchen. I was like, turned out there's a woman from Goiânia who would come every night at midnight 
And outside on this abandoned industrial street outside the yellow cab yard, she set up this mobile rolling night kitchen and she would cook Brazilian food for the cab drivers. And not just the Brazilian cab drivers, the Iranian cab drivers, the Russian cab drivers, the Southern cab drivers. And she had this little sort of blue tarp and this, the cab doors would all be open and Brazilian music was blaring. And she had this little scene and they said, oh, just make it look like you work for Yellow Cab. Just go park in the parking lot and just walk out and look like you know what you're doing and come out the other side of the cab yard. So we went one night at midnight. They drew us a little map. We followed the map out to it. And there, as we say, it was a hidden kitchen vision. Jeanette, this music, this her little boy was asleep in the car, cooking away. We spent this night and kept going Jeanette's the place where we take a break when we are hungry. Then the good word started to spread out, and now the whole neighborhood comes here. The people that deliver papers use that street, and musicians stop by to eat. They started to play too when I put out chairs in the street. Then there was the World Cup. We put out the TV set. And we kept going back and back and back, and we went, well, if Jeanette is cooking on this street corner, who else is out there? What else don't we know about? Then we started saying, who's cooking on your corner? Who are your local kitchen pioneers and visionaries? What traditions and kitchen rituals are endangered and need to be chronicled? So we opened up phone lines on Morning Edition and asked that question, and 2,789 minutes of messages, 36 CDs worth of phone messages came in with calls. We hadn't even ever imagined the kinds of calls and ideas that people brought to the table around this idea of um, hidden kitchens. And the piece that opened the entire series was, uh, I think, one of the most astounding messages we got. Message 23 was received at 1.10 p.m. today. I'm Margaret Engel, a woman who works for legal aid, who's talking to me about how many of her clients get dinner. The people who struggle to even get food on the table because they don't have an official kitchen and who are using George Foreman grills and the like. The George Foreman grill... Homeless people and new immigrants use the grill as a hidden kitchen. I mean, the people on the street are plugging in the, into the telephone poles and the people in these apartments where they're not supposed to have a kitchen are disguising their George Foreman grill and, you know, so they don't get busted and they're, they're creating their own kitchens out of, you know, putting ice in buckets and for refrigerators. And it, it, just, it, it just opened this world. And we knew, I think, from the get-go that we wanted to do stories that were beyond, oh, yeah, this is a great place to eat or this is the newest thing in town kind of thing. And we knew we wanted to do stories about hunger and poverty and the flip side of of food, um, the dark side of food. But that phone call, that idea of the George Foreman Grill really gave us this backdoor way into a subject which we wanted to deal with through an amazing story. So I think the phone line was pretty key to the series. How did heavyweight boxer George Foreman's name become forever inextricably tied to an early electric countertop grill? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I can't run, but I can walk much faster than 
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming Bananas Foster, with modern Creole cooking by three-time James Beard Award finalist Slade Rushing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How did heavyweight boxer George Foreman's name become forever inextricably tied to an early electric countertop grill? Let's let the former world champion himself tell us the story as he explained it to the Kitchen Sisters. Growing up in Houston, Texas, my whole life was spent trying to get enough to eat. Having seven kids, my mother did, and that just was never enough food for me. I always dreamed about not a car, not a beautiful home, but enough to eat. My name Piggly Wiggly. Every day at lunch during the summer days, you'd hear the parents call the kids in. They would just tell me, okay, go home and eat your lunch. And these people knew I had no food at home. And I'd peep through the window at, at the kids eating. And the parents would peel the crust off the bread. And I would sit there and just hope they would just throw it out the window for me. Going to school, you go through the lunch line, 26 cents. I couldn't afford that. And I'd sit at the table, and it was so embarrassing. So what I would do, I'd get a greasy bag, blow it up on the way to school to make it look like there was a sandwich in it. Then I'd get to my classroom and say, boy, I ate my lunch. And I learned to disguise my not having food. In 1977, when I left boxing, I realized I didn't have any friends. People weren't pouring into my home anymore. And I noticed if I'd barbecue something, they would come over. Even the guys we'd go fishing, I wanted them to stay and come back so much, I would always clean the fish, do all the cooking. I found out more satisfying than even winning boxing matches when people would lick their fingers and say my food was good. That grill, I'm just happy that it's helped so many people. Helped me, of course. My brother Roy and I started the George Foreman Youth Center. I have these summer camps so the kids can know to come. They can have a lunch every day. Just had to be there for them. I'll never forget. And I'm pushed and compelled. I mean, there's a food bank. All you got to do is ask George Foreman. If I can find a dime, I want to make sure you get it. I try to keep those little visions alive for myself. Feed them. What's George's favorite thing to cook on his famous grill? Salmon steak. He makes a marinade with garlic, lemon pepper, black pepper, balsamic vinegar, and a little oil. He marinates the salmon for a very short time and then puts it on the grill. So as he says, the smell is there. Everybody loves smells. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
And now, our conversation with Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, NPR's renowned Kitchen Sisters, continues. There was a Louisiana tie-in in Hidden Kitchens. Many a Louisiana tie-in. I mean, if you look at that archive of calls um, out of those 2,789 minutes of messages, I would say, I just haven't looked in years, but I bet you there are 30 to 50 calls from Louisiana. I mean, Texas, Louisiana, those states were some of the most juicy. They kind of clustered up, and Louisiana kind of led the charge. And so one of those Louisiana calls led you to Angola Prison? Yeah. A woman who's a great social activist here in town called in to tell us about a man who was in Angola Penitentiary. And while he was there, he was part of the Angola Three. He was in solitary confinement for 29 years, ultimately let out, found not guilty. But while in solitary, he created a clandestine kitchen in his cell, and he made pralines because Angola has the pecans, the milk, the butter, the, every ingredient. And when this food was being brought into him, the trustees would sort of sneak that extra little bit of something in there, and he kind of created a Coke can kitchen, had a little bit of uh, foil and all these things, and kind of was able to craft these pralines. He had worked in the prison kitchen, too, and he'd been obsessed with candy as a boy, watching his grandmother make candy. And so we'd heard about him, but Nikki saw, after Katrina, saw various listservs, and King Wilkerson was listed, Robert King Wilkerson, as one of the missing people. And was anyone, had anyone found him? And she remembered the message. And so after Katrina, we were keeping our eyes open for him. And when he kind of surfaced, we then started to talk to him and tell his story. I think I cried more in those 16 days that I was in the house after Katrina than I did in 31 years I did in prison. It not only took so much away from me as an individual, it replicated this hundreds of thousands of times. I think candy is, is a collateral. My doing what I'm doing, keeping focus on the injustices that were taking place in Angola. If doing so by cooking, making candy, open up kitchen, can produce money to aid them, so be it. Maybe that's, that's my calling. So after the King story aired on NPR, we got the most amazing message from Angola. And they said, we love the Kitchen Sisters down here, which was the first thing kind of a surprise to us that they were listening and they said, but we want to invite the Kitchen Sisters down here because, you know, we have this rodeo and we have these things happening. And we want to show them that you really couldn't do a hidden kitchen in uh, solitary, that this isn't possible. So anyway, they, we said, of course we want to come. We're making chicken on the stick with mushroom and onions. They sell like hotcakes. My name is Franklin Green. I've been here uh, going on 24 years. I was sent to life on drug charge. Since I come here, I've given my life to the law. We have a saying in Angola that you can be in Angola, but Angola don't have to be in you. It was after Katrina, and there was this fear that a lot of the food was being lost, blown away by the storm, and it's this one little spot at Angola where the traditions were being continued on this little sideline. We just came to document that and see that, which was an amazing, 
an amazing thing. And so afterwards, you know, we weren't very convinced that King couldn't have done that in, in solitary. So we said to King, you know, King, they said that they don't think you could have been doing that hidden kitchen in your cell in solitary. And he goes, well, I guess that's why they call it a hidden kitchen. <laughs> so. I'd like to talk with you all a little bit about National Public Radio. Would you just unravel for us the importance of National Public Radio and why you've chosen that to be your platform? What a great question, Poppy. What a surprise that that's what we're talking about in your kitchen. When we first started on National Public Radio, it was an experiment. I mean, it was so new, and no one even knew really what it was or what it might sound like, but there was this commitment made to unfettered expression, free expression of ideas from all points of view, and also in as artistic and high quality a way as possible with people who were really informed about ideas, people whose ideas had never been heard, whose voices were traditionally left out of the mediums, who were being ignored by the media, and also to a system that would come to be hundreds of stations, a, a network that has a national presence, but then also a local presence so that it's strong on two levels. We've been with doing stories on NPR for decades, and I only feel that all the more when you just see how much pressure there is on what can be told on a commercial station for fear of offending a sponsor, for um, creating a controversy, and people don't want a controversy for a station that represents only one side of a story, either whether that's more progressive or that's more conservative, whereas representing a full spectrum of ideas. And also, it's a medium, too, where so many people can participate in it. The, the tools of radio are pretty accessible are very learnable. You can become part of this network. But there's so little civil discussion. There's so much rage and uh, provocation and bombast and hostility and drawing of lines and, and polarization in the culture. And NPR and PRI and the Public Radio Exchange, all the different outlets in public radio are still remain so committed to civil discourse, to discussion, to airing ideas with mutual respect. And I think just like your show right now, I mean, it's the idea of digging deeper beyond the soundbite. Oh, and especially now that there's the internet. I mean, if you don't catch the person's mind or eye or ear in, what is it, like two seconds, you've lost them. But you know there's an appetite for listening longer. There's an appetite for going beyond. And I think that NPR, although straddling all those same kinds of issues, they really do push it more than any other network. When you're looking at the future of this medium that you ladies have been very accomplished in for decades, what do you think is coming next? Gary Knell was president of NPR a few regimes ago. And when he first came into NPR, he said this phrase, which I love. He said, radio isn't going anywhere. It's going everywhere. To me, radio is radio, but radio is also a state of mind, which is listening. 
When we started in public radio, there was so little out there. And now you look around and so many people have taken on this craft, are doing such incredible work in it, delving deep into their subject matter and really inventing something. It asks everyone in the culture to be more alert, to be your own curator, to have a sense of all the different newspapers and news sources you might hear and the sonic sources you might hear and maybe to pick up those tools and create it for yourself and to make sure that the stories around you that you're not hearing on the media are getting chronicled. You know, that's part of being a citizen is listening and passing it along. Well, this has been such an incredible treat to have this chance to visit with you all. And I hope you never, ever come back to New Orleans without visiting us again. Right back at you, Poppy, because we have sat in admiration so much of what you do, how you chronicle the culture and the traditions of food in Louisiana and elsewhere. And this, that Joan of Arc spirit that you have, you know, that that these stories matter, that these people matter, that the ground that is being farmed, the water is being fished and shrimped, that it all matters and has to be nurtured and cared for and celebrated. Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, the Kitchen Sisters. After talking with the Kitchen Sisters, I began to see food stories from the flip side of history everywhere. I also began to encounter other kindred kitchen spirits. In particular, I found an emerging kitchen sister in author Sarah Lohman. Sarah is a self-described historical gastronomist, which means that she mines historical documents to discover how people cooked hundreds of years ago. Much like Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, and me, she's also interested in the people behind the food stories. Sarah even wrote about the Chili Queens of San Antonio, the fascinating ladies the Kitchen Sisters once devoted an entire radio documentary to. When I spoke to Sarah, her unending curiosity about the flip side of food history was clear. Food is so easy to talk about. Um, There's not necessarily this sort of in language and this hierarchy of food. We all eat so we can all use it to connect. Flavor itself is a combination of um, taste, the five basic tastes, aroma, but those two things are processed along with other things like texture and temperature in the same part of our brain that connects to memory. So it is also something that is indistinguishable and is connected to our own memories and our own self. And I think that that is really powerful. So food can be very evocative of our past and our heritage as well. So you've got your first book, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. What are those eight flavors, first of all? So they're chronologically um, listed in terms of when they came into the American kitchen. So it's black pepper, vanilla, chili powder, curry powder, soy sauce, garlic, monosodium glutamate, and sriracha. But what you're really telling in the book are the stories of the people behind those ingredients. Absolutely. So 
Tell us about some of the more fascinating characters. Well, that is what I I really love doing with this book. You know, I do talk about the botany. I do talk about the science behind why we like some of these flavors. But very quickly in my research, I realized that they're all connected to these really unique individuals. And more often than not, they're people that don't normally get written about in the history books. Uh, They are slaves. They are immigrants. They are Mexican-Americans. They are women. Uh, These are the people who have greatly affected our food over time. So we go all the way from the story of Edmund Albius, who was a a boy, a kid, a slave in uh, Réunion, a colony, a, a French colony off of Madagascar. And he discovered the way to pollinate vanilla that is still used across the globe today. Vanilla is an orchid. It's native to Mexico. People were desperately in love with this flavor in the 19th century and before. But when it was transported to other countries, it would blossom but not fruit. And he changed the culinary landscape of the planet when he was a young boy. But because he was a slave, even though later he was freed, he simply didn't have the same opportunities that someone who was white had despite his genius. And he died in poverty. So it's this bittersweet story in that we get to know his name, which is so rare of a black man of that time. But despite his great discovery, his life was sad after this moment. I talk about the Chili Queens of San Antonio. These were, um, I mean, it's it's hard to give them a little. I can say Mexican-American. I can say American-Mexican. They were women who were living in Texas when Texas went from a Mexican state to an American state. Um, and at one time, by the way, Mexico created laws to stop the immigration of Americans into Mexico. So that is something I read about in the book that's important to remember. Um, And these were young women, unmarried, who would make chili with their families and sell it as a tourist attraction in front of the Alamo. Their food was as important to the tourist scene in San Antonio in the late 19th century as they were. They were um, infamous and flirtatious and sort of seductive and magical and in some ways stereotyped, too. And they lasted to the 1940s until modern sort of food laws shut them down. And now with the revival of the food truck industry, um, I should even say revival, um, immigrants to this country have always used food and mobile food vending as a way to start and begin to gain financial independence in this country. Talk to us about the witches. The witches. What was the problem with the witches, Sarah? (laughs) So this is a really fun research project I did. I mean, a lot of the reason that I started writing my blog and now that I do a lot of public talks is that oftentimes there's just something I want to know. I want to learn more about. So I had read a really interesting paper that actually I think came out in the 70s now. And uh, if you've ever read, you know, The Crucible, anything about the Salem witch trials, it's often blamed on the hysteria of a group of young women, sometimes even politics and manipulation. And there were a few anthropologists, female anthropologists in the 70s that put forward the idea that maybe there was a more, um, there was a real factor beyond imagination. There is a particular fungus that grows on rye. Rye was a very popular crop for areas that are cold, um, that don't have long growing seasons, like Europe and like New England, around Salem and Massachusetts. But if the summers are particularly wet, it grows this fungus called ergot. 
Ergot means um, spur in French, and it looks like a spur. It reminds me in a way like huit lecoche, the corn fungus, but although the corn fungus is delicious, um, ergot is actually poisonous, and it contains chemicals in common with LSD. But it was so common on rye that in botanical drawings of rye from, for example, the 16th and 17th century, it was included as though it was a part of the plant because nobody knew that it wasn't. So this hallucinogenic grain would appear more commonly in wet years, would get ground with the rye flour and then baked into bread. And that process wasn't enough to destroy the hallucinogenic qualities. So you would actually get ergot poisoning, which when this particular scholar looked at the symptoms of ergot poisoning versus what people were experiencing when they were being uh, attacked or possessed by witches, she found some frightening similarities. So her point was, okay, it still might be about hysteria, and politics and manipulation, but what if what if the fear of witches was grounded in something real? These physiological experiences that they were having that that the people at the time had no explanation for. So I found it fascinating that there was this supernatural connection with the foods that they were eating and the experience they were having. That is an amazing story. And you know, if a historical tale isn't enough, you've done some amazing exploration into some things that maybe nobody else is cooking with anymore. And yet you manage to seek out the ingredients and cook these things up. Now, let's talk about what a muffle of moose is. (laughs) So a moose muffle is the nose and upper lip and a little bit of the face of a moose. They have um, a prancile upper lip that can kind of grab with it almost like an elephant. So a mooful is the sort of muscle and fat and all of the other structural materials within a moose's face. And apparently in 19th, 18th century Canada, uh, where people were hunting moose for their meat, I couldn't even, I don't know if I could call it a delicacy, but um, if you were on the hunt, it would be the thing that as a trapper, you weren't going to sell so that you would eat. It became a little more rare later on the 19th and 20th century because when people are hunting moose, they want the head as a trophy. So they're not going to have that piece of it. But it seems that even in the 19th century, moose moofle stew was appearing on restaurant menus in New York City. How do you discover this amazing fact? That's so funny. I can't even remember how I stumbled across it. Usually when I get ideas, I am reading another scholar's work or I have uh, come across a historic text on um, Google Books and there'll just be something like that where you say, wait a minute, people were eating moose face? <laughs> that that kind of trips, I'm like, okay. And I'll, you know, I'll put it into a list. I'll put it in the back of my mind. And in this case, I happen to have a dear friend who lives in Alaska who is friends with hunters. And I said, you know, if someone bags a moose and they don't want the trophy, I need uh, a moofle to make this moose moofle stew. Could you hook me up? And it took a little while. It took over a year. But one day a box showed up and it was uh, half a moose's face in a garbage bag. It was really, (laughs) it was an experience to prepare it, I have to say. 
What did you have to do? Well, it was... How did you go about it? And how did you even know what to do? I mean, I didn't. It was kind of a disaster, and it took most of the day. Um, Because I invited people over, too. That's a great way to get yourself on a deadline to make sure you do something like this. Come on over and And... help me cut up this moose face. (laughs) Oh, no. They're just there for the eating. I take on the prep. But, you know, luckily my friends are game enough to be brave enough to come over and try this stuff. It was literally... It was a frozen... um, upper jaw of a moose so I had to thaw it it was the fur was still on it I had to try to scald it but I cooked it too much and I made it harder to get the fur and the skin off I didn't have great knives at the time this is a couple years ago I needed something sharper eventually I got the skin off I got the fur off I got the meat off the bone and then cooked it in a stew and actually most of the people who showed up they thought it was not bad or they liked it But to me, there was this particular gamey smell as I was processing this scalded, half-cooked meat that stuck with me. And that's something I've experienced more than once, that that the process of preparing the food is so appalling, it affects how I feel about the dish in the end. But if I serve it to someone else, they don't have that sort of pre-association and they love it. What else? What what else has really made you take a step back and say well glad y'all are here eat up (laughs) well i have to say that one of the reasons i make these recipes is because i really relish putting myself into the shoes of people from the past and i think that by actually making these recipes and in some cases working with the ingredients you learn really unexpected things um so it's that process that is such a discovery for me whether the results i think are good or bad Incredible. All in the name of culinary history, to have that experience, um, to connect with the past. Author and historical gastronomist, Sarah Lohman. When we come back from a short break, we meet iconic New Orleans seafood retailer and local TV commercial personality, Al Scramuza. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? We've just posted a new one that's very bean-centric. It includes a Beans Around the World cooking demonstration with Chef Alain Shia and interviews about the importance of the humble bean with world food leaders like Rick Bayless and Raj Patel. Bean the change you want to see in the world. Just go to poppytooker.com and click on the Quick Bites podcast link. It's delicious. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. If you watch television in New Orleans from the late 70s to the early 90s, there's a good chance you remember a series of local late-night commercials that played out like this. 
in a wood-paneled room, a mustachioed doctor in a white lab coat is visited by patients suffering from everything from arthritis to infertility. His prescribed cure for everything? Crawfish. Tell him, dear. We have been trying to have children for many years. Can you help us? Take this prescription, my dear, for three pounds of crawfish for 15 days. You should have many children. Oh, thank you so much, doctor. Great. The business was Seafood City, and the doctor was seafood magnate Al Scramuza. Al's comical and campy TV ads dominated the airwaves for decades, and each of them he wrote, produced, and starred in. But even before his commercials made him a household name, Al was combining his acumen for business and marketing to turn a profit and play a major role in the Mudbug's rise to culinary fame. Hi, this is Al Scabooz. I think most of you guys know me. Stay with Al Scamuzzi, you'll never be a loser. And I'm famous for crawfish. I don't know how many people you know that eat crawfish, but just about everybody that lives in, in Louisiana eat them. However, in 1950, 99% of the people in New Orleans did not know what really crawfish were or are. I'm the guy that brought crawfish to New Orleans. I'm the guy that marketed crawfish. In fact, it was considered then as a trash food. People used it to like catch fish, bait, etc. However, me being a very indigent child growing up, food was hard to get. So help me God, if you ate crawfish then, you were lucky. I got into business in 1949, I got into business. In 1950, I had a little old fruit stand and a, a grocery, uh, part of a grocery store, and I sold some fresh seafood, shrimp, crabs, and fish. And we used, to, we used to sell live chickens, in fact. And a guy came to my facility and had this little pickup truck with about 40 sacks of crawfish, and I said, man, I used to eat those when I was a youngster, like you wouldn't believe. He said, yeah, I know, people are trying to eat them now, but not mostly in the country, the Cajun people. It was from the country, you know, trying to sell them in New Orleans. People didn't want them, they didn't know. And he says, well, he said, uh, why don't you try a few sacks? I says, how much are they? He says, oh, 10 cents a pound. I said, well, how big are the sacks? 40 pounds. I said, you want me to give you $4 for a sack of crawfish? You must be crazy. We used to get those things for nothing. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll leave you 10 sacks here, and then if you do not sell them, I'll pick them up. I said, okay, what am I gonna do now to sell these damn crawfish? But I'm gonna find out. So I got two little kids, about 12, 13 years old, one, and we were on Broad Street, very live, live street, a lot of traffic. I tired of crawfish on the end of the string on the crawfish pole, on the, on the fishing pole. And on one side of the neutral ground going east, I had a kid two blocks away. And the other side of the neutral ground going west, two blocks away. So we're catching the traffic both ways. These kids with this fishing pole had these crawfish dangling on it, you know, and 
People was a really attention getter. Man, what the hell is this? And a little kid would say, down there, Broadview Seafoods, they got these, these crawfish here, they're selling them, and these people were coming from every direction. And they were buying like 10 pounds, 15, 20 pounds. They didn't know what the hell to do with them, but they were buying them. I sold a whole 10 sacks that day. So I called this guy up, I said, hey, I said, tomorrow's Saturday, bring me 20 sacks. He says, no, he says, we don't fish on Saturdays. I said, Monday, not Monday either. I said, well, when, when do you fish? He says, we start on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. So every week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I'd, say, I'd, I'd get the max from him for like the first five or six weeks. And I got tired of this guy not being able to supply me. So one morning I went, I knew where he lived. I went to his house at five o'clock in the morning and I waited until he got in his truck and I followed the guy. The guy went to a place called Buy Your Pigeon and he went to a little corner bar. just making daylight. And he came out the corner bar and I said, okay, that's where he's getting his crawfish. I said, fine. So I go down this road, and I see this little old man, little Cajun man, I said, hey, cousin. I said, you fish crawfish? He said, oh yeah. I said, what about that guy down over at that ballroom down there? Oh, he said, that's my nephew. He buy all the crawfish. I said, well, how much he pay y'all? He said, he pays two cents a pound. I said, well, I'll tell you what. You have some relatives that you can get the fish for me and you could, you could buy them from them for two cents a pound? Oh yeah. I said, well you go ahead and buy them for them for two cents a pound and I'll give you three cents a pound. <laughs> the American way of life. <laughs> that was the inception of crawfish, here we come. Here crawfish comes. So through the years, I was selling these crawfish at the beginning just live. And it got to a point of where I'd have some left over and I wasn't able to sell them. So I told my brother, what we're gonna do? He says, well, he says, we know how to boil crawfish. We know what spices to put in the crawfish. We know how to season them. Let's go ahead and boil some crawfish when we have some left. So I went to the junkyard and I got four boilers, the biggest one they had. And put me four burners together and ran the gas. I knew how to do all that. And I started boiling crawfish. And the first crawfish that I boiled, believe it or not, I sold them four pounds for a dollar, 25 cents a pound. At that time, there wasn't any tele, there was only one television station and it was WDSU. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on media. I was on TV all hours of the night, all hours of the day. I was on TV, radio, whatever. I did believe in spending money on media. And I know for a fact that the most important thing you can buy in your life is your name. That's, that's the part. And that's the reason why I'm successful in everything I do. Well, I wrote a song. And from that song, I took the melody. And from that melody, I wrote a jingle. And now there are so many people using my melodies, I can sue NFL because they're using my melody. There are about four or five other people out there using that melody, and it goes like this. 
Down in Louisiana where the crawfish grow, there is a new thing that you ought to know. While Scamooza is the crawfish king, baby, watch him do his crawfish thing, doing the crawfish. And it goes like this. And from that came the Seafood City commercial. Seafood City, very pretty. Seafood City, very pretty. Everything is pretty down at Seafood City, down on Broad and St. Bernard. Seafood City, 1826. The King of Crawfish. Al Scramuza. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also pre-order my latest book, The Pascal's Manali Cookbook, debuting this fall. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the site. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And... From Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. 